What a great way to lead into the Word of God. And speaking of which, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, we will eventually come to Nehemiah chapter 9, but it's going to be with a significant detour, first to a couple of dozen different places in the Old Testament. So we're going to take a little tour together, and we will end up in Nehemiah 9. I've entitled the rich time that we've had these past months in Ezra and Nehemiah by the familiar hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And we've spent every message highlighting an aspect of the faithfulness of God as shown in Ezra and Nehemiah. And as we begin to close in on the end of this tremendously important Old Testament book, it's obviously separated traditionally into translations in the two books of Ezra and Nehemiah, but really they should be considered as one. We're now arriving at chapter 9 of Nehemiah, and that was the inspiration for encapsulating the whole series as great is thy faithfulness. And so to get us caught up to where we are, the generation now in Israel, they're descended from the first returned exiles. They finished the wall of Jerusalem with God's help about 90 years or so after those first exiles had returned. It took some time. In Nehemiah chapter 8, just days after the completion of the wall, the people gathered in total unity as one man and they requested that the law of God be read to them. And you recall that Ezra the scribe did so and with the help of many Bible teachers taught the people the word of God all day long. And they found in the law that they were to celebrate the Feast of Booths and it hadn't been fully celebrated for hundreds of years. And so they were eager to obey the word obey the law, and so they celebrated the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And since this was a sabbatical year, once every seven years, the law of God was read again. And as we'll see when we reach Nehemiah 9, the law of God will be read a third time. And so by the time we get to what Nehemiah 9 records as the 24th day of the seventh month, in a span of 24 days, the people have heard the entire Torah, the entire Pentateuch, The law of God three times. They're saturated in the word and they're now spiritually sensitive to the things of the Lord. And this spiritual softness and conviction and sensitivity, this is going to lead to a corporate prayer of God's people, a prayer of confession, a prayer in which Israel will make a case, you ready for this, against herself to God. Nehemiah 9 teaches post-exile Israel and teaches us as the readers really one major lesson, one major theme that summarizes and and captures the essence of all of Ezra and Nehemiah in one statement. It's one major lesson which points the reader, points Israel forward toward a need for something greater, toward a need for a lasting covenant, for a covenant that can't be ruined, that can't be maligned, and can't be put off track by the sins of unfaithful people. One lesson which proves beyond a shadow of a doubt time and time again that God has been true, that God has been consistent, and that time and time again God's people have been guilty of covenant unfaithfulness. One lesson in this chapter which shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that a more permanent, effective, effectual heart change must occur in God's people in order to enjoy lasting and eternal fellowship and union with God. What is that one lesson? It is simply this. God is faithful and His people are not. That's the lesson. God is faithful and His people are not. 
So for now, we'll leave the post-exile Israelites at their gathering on the 24th day of the seventh month as they're about to pray to Yahweh together in response to having heard the word of God a third time that month. We'll leave them ready to pray and we're going to set the stage for that prayer. The lesson of Nehemiah 9 is that God is faithful and his people are not. How has God been faithful? You've all seen historical monuments, a, a plaque or a statue set up to remind you of, a, of an event, some momentous event or person in history, and I'd like to treat this topic in that way. I'd like to show you five major monuments of God showing His faithfulness with the eventual outcome that His people will show their unfaithfulness. That's the lesson. God is faithful and His people are not. I'm going to give each monument a basic title with a subheading under it to kind of help us summarize it. And we'll go through these a couple of times. First monument we'll simply call creation. It is creation. That is the first monument of God's faithfulness. And we might give it a subheading, Yahweh displays His uniqueness. Yahweh displays His uniqueness. That's the point of creation. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, as much as in our era we would like to see Genesis 1 and 2 as being primarily about the, answering the question of creation versus evolution, that's not the point of the text. Now, it does do that very well, but that's not the point. There's nobody in the original readership of Genesis that would think that was an issue at all. This was not the debate in the mind of the purposes of God in giving us this inspired account of creation. In fact, the, the purpose of the creation account is to answer a completely different question, to settle a debate in the mind of the reader. It answers this question, how many true gods are there? That's the point of Genesis 1. The creation account proves the uniqueness of Yahweh as the only true and living God. Now, Moses recorded the divinely inspired words of Genesis 1 for Israel so that they would have a written record of creation proving that Yahweh is the one true living God. And I want to try to prove this to you here. Israel had come out of Egypt, a, a horribly polytheistic culture, thousands of different gods that you could choose from to worship, and they were about to be and were surrounded by nations that were all polytheistic, every single one of them. There was not another uh, a nation that worshipped the one true living God. And I think this is an aspect of Genesis 1 and 2 that's completely missed by those who try to redefine this text as somehow supporting any, any sort of evolution or long ages of billions of years. And, and we know this and we have to acknowledge it that for well over a century, liberal Bible scholars have tried to show that the Genesis account of creation is just borrowed from other ancient creation accounts. And, but this is faulty and shallow logic. It's nothing more than an excuse to get away from Scripture as God breathed as an inerrant revelation and to try to make Scripture match uh, errant science. But they do bring up a good point. They just miss the point of the good point. The good point they bring up is that other ancient nations did have written creation accounts. Now, why would we assume that the biblical account is taken from them? That's just sheer idiocy. Let me explain the larger context. In the ancient Near East in which Israel was emerging as God's chosen nation, to every major culture, beginnings were thought to be very crucial, very important. Beginnings established who was in charge. Beginnings told people what their purpose in life was, and it established the local deity, the local God, as it were, 
as the head of all the gods. And more importantly, it kept the current king in power because he proclaimed himself a representative of that God who supposedly made all things. Therefore, every major culture has a creation account. There are numerous well-known ancient accounts of creation. You have the Atrahasis epic. It doesn't tell a creation story directly, but it tells the purpose of mankind related to the gods, that mankind was made in order to free the gods from toil and labor of producing food on the earth, that more importantly, it was to establish that the king of the nation was the top of a social system so that all service to the king is seen as service to the gods. In other words, it was a story to keep one king in power and in luxury at all times. The most famous, the Babylonian epic Enuma Elish, is the most famous non-biblical creation account. It honors the Babylonian god Marduk as the champion of all the gods and as the creator of heaven and earth. And in order to serve Marduk, you must serve the Babylonian kings. There is the Assyrian creation epic, almost identical to the Enuma Elish. They just plagiarized and substituted their primary god, Asher, for Marduk. One of the more interesting accounts is the Egyptian creation account called the Memphite Theology. And this elevated the Egyptian god, Ptah. Now, why is this one important? When the first dynasty established its capital at Memphis, not Tennessee, but Egypt, it was necessary to justify this sudden switch in capital cities and in power. So the Memphite theology was created to, to say that a new god has come to town, meaning a new king has come to town, meaning keep that tax money rolling in. All of these creation accounts had a selfish political purpose, and that was to convince people that the current king was the, a son of the gods and that he had a god's right to rule and receive submission and wealth and total power. The creation accounts of the ancient Near East were basically political propaganda to elevate local gods and thus elevate local kings. And so Israel here, as Moses is giving them the book of Genesis, they're on the plains of Moab, they're, they're about to enter into conquest and they're, they're coming to a place where they will be surrounded by nations, surrounded by empires with creation accounts. And so before being surrounded by these nations with their false gods and creation accounts, God graciously gave Israel the real story. And in fact, the Genesis account describes God as creating all the things that are worshipped as gods in the ancient Near East. For example, Israel had just left Egypt where Egyptians worshipped Ra, the supreme sun god, and Kansu, the moon god, and they would be entering a land well-versed in Babylonian star worship. Enuma Elish says that the stars were pre-existent god-like figures that were organized into constellations by Marduk. They're elevated to deity. But when you read the Genesis account of creation, listen to how God treats the sun and the moon and the stars, which were representatives of the greatest of all the false gods of the many ancient Near Eastern peoples. God doesn't even directly name the sun and the moon. Look at Genesis 1.16. So God made the two great lights. There it is. A little more detail. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And how much attention to the stars does the creation account give? Just a footnote. And also the stars. There's billions of stars. Two words in Hebrew. 
Scripture downplays their significance because they are created things. The sun and the moon and the stars are not deities to be worshipped. They are things created by the one true living God. And this is so important because the surrounding nations were going to try to draw Israel into idolatry and to spiritual adultery. And so God has given them an account that tells the only true story of creation. And it puts down and discredits all other stories of the beginning. All so that God's people would walk with Him. All so that God's people would worship Him. All so that God's people would see Him as the one and only true and living God. And what is, what is the knowledge of creation meant to do? It is meant to cause worship. Psalm 95 verse 6 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh our Maker. And because He is the Maker, because He is the Creator, He's worthy of worship. He is unique. So the first monument of God's faithfulness, creation, Yahweh displays His uniqueness. The second monument we'll call Abraham. Abraham, and the subheading we would use is Yahweh promised a nation and a land for eternity. That Yahweh promised a nation and a land for eternity. Turn just a few pages over to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12 stands as a remarkable first step in God's plan to form a beloved nation through whom God would reveal Himself to the world. And it all started with one old man. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1, second monument, Abraham, Yahweh promised a nation and a land for eternity. Genesis 12, verse 1, And Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who curse you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You're familiar with this text as the first revelation of the Abrahamic covenant here in Genesis 12 before God changed Abram's name to Abraham. Abraham was to leave his country, that is Chaldea. He was to leave his extended family. He was to go forth to a new land many hundreds of miles away. A land that he wouldn't ever actually possess personally, but would be promised to him, to his descendants. And God promised Abraham, essentially, that he would do seven great acts. And they're not complex. They're just listed here in verses 2 and 3. That first of all, a great nation would come from Abraham. A great nation would come from Abraham. Israel is, by God's power, the greatest nation that that the world has ever seen. Why would we say this? What about the Egyptian empire? Where are they? They're gone. What about the Assyrian empire? Where are they? They're gone. What about the Babylonians? Gone. What about the Romans? Gone. What about the Greeks? Gone. All major empires are gone. Israel, still God's chosen nation 3,500 years later. And if you add the hundreds of years before that to the promises made to Abraham, now you're talking 4,000 years. That's a great nation. The second great act, personal blessing would come on Abraham. I will bless you, God says. Abraham was protected. He was blessed tremendously by God all throughout his lifetime. Abraham lived to see his chosen son, Isaac, be born miraculously by his wife, Sarah, who was too old to bear children. He lived to see his twin grandsons, Jacob and Esau. They would have been about 15 when Abraham passed away. He was essentially a king who just simply didn't have a permanent homeland yet. 
He had a personal standing army, a personal fortune. He even went to war against multiple kings and always won. The third great act God promises is is greatness of reputation would come upon Abraham. I will make your name great. To this day, Abraham is revered by Jews, by Christians. He's even part of a story Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. He's mentioned in the very first verse of the New Testament and 65 more times after that in the New Testament. He's mentioned in 10 out of 27 New Testament books and nine times in Hebrews alone. His reputation continues to be great. Nobody will know who you are 4,000 years after you live. Everybody knows who Abraham is. That's a great name. There's a fourth great act that God would do. Abraham would be a blessing in general. He would be just generally speaking a blessing He's a blessing to us, isn't he? We personally cling hard to the Abrahamic covenant. Whether you know that's what you're doing or not, you are. We cling to the Abrahamic covenant as Christians because it was to Abraham that God promised to bless all the nations. Not to you, not to me. God did not obligate himself to you. He did not obligate himself to me. He did obligate himself unconditionally to Abraham and we get to be under that umbrella. That is a blessing. There's a fifth great act here. God will bless those who bless Abraham. What does that mean? Uh, to, to be simplistic about it, it means that if you align with Abraham by believing in the God of Abraham, you will be blessed. And did you know that this would even be a measure of judgment that Jesus Christ will use in the coming kingdom? He'll use this as a measure of judgment in, and he explains this in the Gospel of Matthew in his explanation of the coming judgment of Gentiles right after the Great Tribulation. And he explains this in what we often call the sheep and the goat judgment. And what is his criteria? That if you loved and cared for his brothers, for fellow Jews, for descendants of Abraham, during the time of the tribulation, you have shown yourself to be a true believer in Christ. It's a criteria for judgment. I will bless those who bless you. The sixth great thing God would do, great act, is God will curse those who curse Abraham. That if you reject the God of Abraham, your life will end in a curse of judgment. And in the sheep and goat judgment, again, Jesus will also pronounce that those who rejected and spurned Jews during the Great Tribulation will show themselves as unsaved, unregenerate, and are ordered to depart into judgment. And the last great act that God said He would do, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth, every people group will receive blessing through Abraham. Genesis 22.18 gives further clarification that Abraham would bring forth from his line, from his people, the Savior of the world. Galatians 3.8 and Galatians 3.16 confirms this Savior as none other than Jesus Christ, the one through whom salvation from sin is offered to all the families of the earth. Do you see what I mean? That we cling to the Abrahamic covenant? And in the coming kingdom of Christ on earth, we see Israel, the great nation promised to Abraham as the capital nation, on earth, bringing blessing to all the other nations. We read that this morning in Psalm 67. The first monument of God's faithfulness, creation, that Yahweh displays His uniqueness. Second monument of God's faithfulness, Abraham, that Yahweh promised a nation and a land for eternity. The third monument we'll call liberation. Liberation, that Yahweh liberated His people with power. He liberated his people with power and this was to bring them to the land that was promised to them. Turn a page or so over to Genesis 15. And we'll look at verse 12 here. 
Genesis 15, 12, and God is going to put Abraham into a deep sleep, a terrifying sleep, because of what God's going to reveal to Abraham about the people who will come from his body. In Genesis 15, verse 12, Now it happened that when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Then God said to Abram, Know for certain that your seed will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation to whom they are enslaved. What was God's purpose in this coming enslavement of the descendants of Abraham? There are many purposes, but one of them in particular was for this enslavement to be the incubator, so to speak, to grow an entire nation from one man. Turn to Exodus chapter 1. In Exodus 1, we're going to see that in classic fashion, God uses hardship and suffering to do great and mighty things. Exodus 1, beginning in verse 7. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. And a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. What does that tell us? There were more Israelites than there were Egyptians. And this begins the cycle of events which leads to God's miraculous rescue of Israel. Turn to Exodus 3, next page over. Moses, who has fled Egypt as the privileged Jew who killed an Egyptian in defense of his fellow Jews, he's a simple shepherd now, and he's at Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, with his flock. God appears to him in the midst of a burning bush that isn't consumed, and God gives his message to Moses. Chapter 3, verse 6, he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. So now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now come and I will send you to Pharaoh And so you shall bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. And so God uses Moses and his brother Aaron to effect the greatest series of miracles the world has ever seen to bend the will of Pharaoh and to set up God to get glory over Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth at the time. God showing that he is the true king, that he is the true powerful one. And when God says it's time for His people to be free, then that's what's going to happen. Turn over a page or two to Exodus 6. While you're finding Exodus 6, Exodus 7 through 12 records the ten plagues upon Egypt. But before these begin, God gives His reason for rescuing Israel. And what's His reason? It's His own faithfulness. That's His reason. He is a consistent, promise-keeping God. Exodus 6, verse 2 God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. 
And I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan in which they, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in slavery. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh and I will bring you out from under the hard labors of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their slavery. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. What's the reason he gives? I have remembered my covenant. He is a faithful God. Then God rains down upon Egypt the plagues of water turning to blood, frogs infesting the land, the gnats, the flies, the Egyptian livestock dying, boils on all the Egyptians only, destructive hailing, hail falling only on Egyptian-occupied land, the locusts, the thick black darkness over Egypt, and finally you have the death of all the firstborn of Egypt, including Pharaoh's own oldest son. And so Pharaoh finally relents and lets Israel go, but his heart is hardened one last time under the sovereignty of God. God was setting him up for this final confrontation. Turn to Exodus 14. You see, not only was God rescuing his people, he was also getting glory over Pharaoh. God led his people to camp in a spot where they're trapped. They would be trapped between the Red Sea and the approaching Egyptian army. And God explained to Moses what he was doing. Exodus 14, verse 1. Exodus 14, 1. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, so that they turn back and camp before Pihaharath, between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal Zephon, opposite it by the sea. And Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, They are wandering in confusion in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart with strength and he will pursue them and I will be glorified through Pharaoh and all his army so that the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. But now we begin to see the seeds of the unfaithfulness of God's people. They've just witnessed the ten greatest miracles ever to happen in all time by their own God to defend and to protect them. And how do they respond? Chapter 14, verse 10. Now Pharaoh drew near and the sons of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they became very afraid. So the sons of Israel cried out to Yahweh. Now, hang on just a minute here. They've just seen the 10 greatest miracles of all time, epic miracles on a national scale. What should they be doing here? They should be saying, Mary and... uh, Levi, make the popcorn. This is going to be good. Whatever God does, this is going to be amazing. Get out the lawn chairs. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be phenomenal. And they didn't. How much more can you have your faith built than the ten plagues? Verse 11, then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What is this you have done against us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than for us to die in the wilderness. The people were unfaithful, and yet God showed himself faithful. And he shows his faithfulness with the largest scale miracle in the entire Bible other than the creation itself. Exodus 14, 21 Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and Yahweh swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea into dry ground. 
so the waters were split. Unless you think this was just a little mud puddle that they tramped across, uh, verse 22 is very clear that they, they went across on dry land. And lest you think that this is like the movie version where you can kind of see a wall of water here and a wall of water there, they were several miles apart. This was a massive, massive miracle, which meant they would have been a mile or two high. This is, this is huge. This is epic. God is faithful. Israel went through on dry land and God swept away the following Egyptian army. By the way, he left Pharaoh alive. We know that from history because somebody needed to say Yahweh is God. He got glory over Pharaoh by leaving him alive to witness the destruction of the greatest army on earth. The first monument, creation. The second monument, Abraham. The third monument, liberation. Are you seeing the faithfulness of God? He's always faithful. The fourth monument we'll call mercy. The fourth monument is mercy. We could subtitle this, Yahweh blessed His people in mercy, yet they rejected Him. Yahweh blessed His people in mercy, yet they rejected Him. Turn with me to Exodus 19. Mercy. God led His people to the same place He had appeared to Moses, to the wilderness of Sinai, Mount Horeb. And He gave them their purpose as a nation. How would they fulfill the Abrahamic covenant? Exodus 19, verse 5. So now then, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What is this? This is God raising them up to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, to bless all the nations. The purpose of Israel was to make God big, to make God known in the world. And now God was going to gift His people with a a glimpse of His glory. Chapter 19, verse 10, Yahweh also said to Moses, Go to the people and set them apart as holy today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Verse 18, Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder and Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And how is this for mercy and how is this for faithfulness of God? He would now officially form Israel as his nation. And they did nothing to deserve this. He would give them his covenant. He would be their divine king. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He gives the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, the the basic covenant between God and Israel. The basis for the rest of the law of God. And then the fourth commandment, he gives great mercy to them. The fourth commandment, he gives to his people, just a couple of months earlier, having been slaves all of their lives, working seven days a week. He gives them the sign of his covenant with them in mercy Chapter 20, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work, 
you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female slave or your cattle or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Such mercy. One of the reasons we would find out later that he gives them a day where they cannot work is to make them learn to trust him. In a society where you're earning your bread for that night, to not work one day was considered foolish. But he says, no, I will provide for you. And yet at Sinai, in their impatience, people constructed a golden calf to worship. They credited this molded calf with their rescue, spiritual adultery already. And yet God spared them. He continued on in his faithfulness. And then we get to a, a very practical question. How would this people, about three million strong or more, how are they going to eat and drink in the wilderness on the way to the land promised by God? Just a few chapters earlier in Exodus 16, God promised and He gave bread from heaven, manna. And yet in the midst of this, the people grumbled. Exodus 17, God gave them water from out of a rock miraculously. And yet in the midst of that, they grumbled. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 13. Right near the end of Numbers 13, the people arrive at the border of Canaan, the borders of these nations that they have been commanded to take. The good land promised to Abraham. Moses had sent out spies and they came back and reported the goodness of the land, but they also reported the strength of the people living there and Israel is now at a crossroads. Would they trust God and move forward Would they trust God who has been so perfectly faithful to them at every step of the way? Numbers 13, verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we are surely able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go against the people, for they are too strong for us. Just a little historical note, Israel left Egypt with an army of over 600,000 men. They still had that standing army. Even a generation later, all of the nations of Canaan put together had about 100,000 men who could fight. Israel had a six to one advantage and they said, we're too afraid. They caved to their own fear and they were unfaithful. And in fact, they rebelled completely. The next chapter, Numbers 14, verse 4. So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. They actually appointed a leader to attempt to take over, to attempt a coup, to take over from Moses and lead them back to Egypt. What what are you going to say to Pharaoh? Sorry about the whole decimating your entire army thing. Uh, Sorry about that. And so because of their other unfaithfulness as a people, God decreed that the entire generation 20 and over would die in the wilderness and that the nation would wander 40 years. It was a good day to be 19, I'll tell you that. And yet even in the midst of that time of intense discipline, God was merciful and He was protective. He continued to lead them with a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. He gave them national wisdom by means of the Spirit of God. He continued raining manna on them year after year and always He provided water in a land that gets single-digit rainfall every year. 
He miraculously preserved even their clothing. He preserved their sandals so that their sandals didn't wear out. You ever have a pair of shoes last 40 years? Well, some of you old guys maybe have. Don't answer that question. (laughs) But in that wilderness where you're walking on stones and dirt, that was unheard of because God cared for them. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7. Moses is giving a summary to the second generation of Israel after the first generation has died off. They're preparing for the coming conquest of Canaan. No one hearing this sermon is over the age of 59 except for Joshua and Caleb, the two spies of the twelve who wanted to obey the Lord. And of course, Moses himself. And now Moses gives a summary of the mercy of God even in the midst of Israel's rebellion. Deuteronomy 2, verse 7. For Yahweh your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He has known your wanderings throughout this great wilderness. For 40 years, Yahweh your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. How faithful God continued to be. The first monument, creation. The second monument, Abraham. Third monument, liberation. Fourth monument, mercy. And the fifth, the the most glorious monument to the faithfulness of God, we'll call fulfillment. Fulfillment. And we could subtitle this, Yahweh kept His promises, yet His people forgot Him. Yahweh kept His promises, yet His people forgot Him. Now this is just not a little bit going off track. This is not momentary grumbling and disappointment. This is God's people utterly forgetting Him. Turn to Joshua chapter 11. Joshua 11, kind of right near the end of the chapter. And while you're finding Joshua 11, in brief summary, on their way to the promised land, God showed Israel what He could do through her. He gave a little sample. Numbers chapter 11 records the kings Sion of the Amorites and Og of Bashan being struck down and God giving Israel all their land and Now the book of Joshua records the conquest of Canaan, starting with Jericho and their successful God-empowered victory. But you recall that one Israelite failed to follow God's commands at Jericho regarding not taking any goods, any treasures for himself. And this man, Achan, really acted as a representative of all of Israel because Joshua chapter 7 says that the sons of Israel, the whole nation, acted unfaithfully because of the one man. And because of this, Israel lost the first battle at I or AI. The following chapters of Joshua record many victories in battle and it's summarized in Joshua 11.23. Joshua 11.23, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that Yahweh had spoken to Moses and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land was quiet from war. Turn to Joshua 18, if you will. Now Israel will begin to set up their worship in the land. Joshua 18, verse 1. Then the whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. And the land was subdued before them. Turn to Joshua 21. Right to the end of the chapter, we get another testimony of, of how faithful God is. Joshua 21, verse 43, right near the end. So Yahweh gave Israel all the land which He had sworn to give to their fathers and they possessed it and lived in it. 
And Yahweh gave them rest on every side according to all that He had sworn to His fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. Yahweh gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one promise of the good promises which Yahweh had promised to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. But Israel grew fat, as it were. They reveled in what God had done for them. They grew spiritually fat in that they became arrogant. They began to decide that they didn't need God anymore. Turn to Judges chapter 2, just a few pages over. Joshua, their faithful leader after Moses, has now died. The entire generation who entered the land has passed away. And Judges 2 verse 11 tells us what happened immediately. Judges 2.11, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh and served the Baals. And they forsook Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked Yahweh to anger. You remember the first, uh, the first monument, creation? The whole point was to keep this from happening. Verse 13, so they forsook Yahweh and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. And the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. 1 Kings 14.9, God gives commentary on what they were actually doing. God says this, you have cast me behind your back. You have cast me behind your back. The God is faithful. Judges 2.16 Then Yahweh raised up judges who saved them from the hands of those who plundered them. And how would Israel respond? Verse 17 Yet they did not listen to the judges either. For they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of Yahweh. They did not do as their fathers And the rest of the book of Judges records over and over again this cycle of forsaking God, God bringing punishment, and they're humbled and they repent and then He sends salvation to them and they, they do it again and again and again. And for century after century, even into the good years of the early monarchy of Israel, Israel continued to forsake God with some few small intermittent periods of faithfulness. And all during these centuries, God would send prophets to call Israel back to Himself, to call Israel to repentance. And what often happened? Second Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 15, says, And Yahweh, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by the hand of His messengers, because He had compassion on His people and on His habitation. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, scoffed at His prophets, until the wrath of Yahweh arose against His people Until there was no remedy. The kingdom split into two early in the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. The northern kingdom of Israel was immediately apostate, immediately unfaithful. They were decimated and those who survived carried off by Assyria in 722 BC. The southern kingdom of Judah took longer to become a total loss. But they were eventually crushed and those who survived were carried off by Babylon in three waves in 605 B.C., 597 B.C. and finally culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 after a siege that was so bad that people were starving to death in Jerusalem. This was a disaster. 
But God is faithful. Turn to Ezra chapter 1. Jeremiah had prophesied of the faithfulness of God that after 70 years, a remnant would return. They would come back to their land. Ezra chapter 1, where we started our entire series. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to complete the word of Yahweh from the mouth of Jeremiah, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he had a proclamation passed throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. But now, they're still under Persian rule. Persians had conquered the Babylonians. And yes, they're in their own land. But they're paying taxes. They're paying tribute to Persia. They were a small bunch that could be measured in the tens of thousands instead of in the millions when they first came to the promised land. They were a, a shadow of their former selves, as we, were, we like to say. They were essentially still slaves. They were just getting to live where they wanted to live. But they were slaves, make no mistake. And so 90 years after the first exiles returned, we now find ourselves back with the Israelites Turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. This generation descended from the first returned exiles. They finished the wall of Jerusalem with God's help. In chapter 8, just days after the completion of the wall, the people gathered in total unity and requested that the law of God be read to them. Ezra the scribe did so, and with the help of many Bible teachers, he taught the people the word of God all day long. They found in the law that they were to celebrate the Feast of Booths, which had not been fully celebrated for many hundreds of years. They're eager to obey the, the Word of God, and so they celebrate the Feast of Booths. And since this was a sabbatical year, once every seven years, the law of God was read for a second time. And as we'll see now in Nehemiah 9, the law of God will be read a third time. Verse 1, Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel gathered with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The seed of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they rose up in their place and read from the book of the law of Yahweh their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth they were confessing and worshiping Yahweh their God. Then Jeshua rose up on the Levite's platform along with Bani, Kadmael, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried out with a loud voice to Yahweh their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbenandiah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pathahiah said, Rise up, bless Yahweh your God from everlasting to everlasting. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. And we'll stop right there for a moment. The Feast of Booths began on the 15th of the month. It goes through the 22nd. One day passes to provide a clear division for this next all-important act of the returned exiles, a day of confession. Now, why is this so important? When the law of God was originally read in Nehemiah chapter 8, the people were filled with guilt and sorrow and grief. 
Chapter 8, verses 9 and 11 tells us this, that the law had done its job when compared to the righteous standard of God, that the people realized they always fall short. They couldn't attain to the righteousness. They had fallen short of the glory of God. They couldn't obey the law in their own power, and they were grieved by this. But that wasn't the day to express it. And Nehemiah had said, that's not today. Today is a day of rejoicing. And at the end of the second gathering, Chapter 8, verse 12, chapter 8, verse 17, we have another rejoicing. Verse 17 of chapter 8, there was exceedingly great gladness. But now for the third gathering, it's time to mourn. And it's time to grieve. And it's time to weep. It's time to confess. You noticed in verse 2, the seed of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners This was a time for Israel and for Israel alone. And you recall that in both Ezra and Nehemiah, the returned exiles had regular problems with mixing with foreigners and mixing with their false gods. Even after a 70-year-long punishment, they're still struggling with unfaithfulness. They can't stay faithful. And in verse 3, again, they read from the laws, this is what engenders confession of sin. This is what creates that spiritual tenderness, that spiritual sensitivity And did you notice they spent a fourth of a day confessing sin as an act of worship? This means they were being specific, they were being individual, they were being candid, they were being transparent. This wasn't just a, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. This was listing everything they could think of. They had done everything they could think of their ancestors had done. And now, as this corporate prayer has begun, Israel will make the case against themselves. A case with one point, one lesson. And that lesson is that God is faithful and His people are not. And they make this case against themselves in five parts. In the five monuments of God's faithfulness. The first monument, creation. Yahweh displays His uniqueness. Verse 6, You alone are Yahweh. You have made the heavens. The heaven of heavens with all their hosts the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly host bows down to you. The second monument, Abraham, Yahweh promised a nation and land for eternity. Verse seven, you are Yahweh God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and you gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and cut a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, to give it to his seed. And you have established your promise, for you are righteous. The third monument, liberation. Yahweh liberated his people with power to bring them to their land. Verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and you heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted presumptuously toward them, and you made a name for yourself as it is this day. You split the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry land, and their pursuers you cast into the depths like a stone in the mighty waters. The fourth monument in their case against themselves, mercy Yahweh blessed His people in mercy, yet they rejected Him. Verse 12, And with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night, to light for them the way in which they were to go. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them upright judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments, so you made known to them your holy Sabbath, 
and commanded in them commandments, statutes, and law by the hand of your servant Moses. You gave bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you said to them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. But they, our fathers, acted presumptuously. They became stiff-necked and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you did among them. So they became stiff-necked and gave themselves a chief to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of lavish forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a molten calf and said, This is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. But you and your abundant compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to give them insight. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they did not lack. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. And the fifth monument, fulfillment, the ultimate nail in the coffin of Israel's case against themselves, fulfillment. Yahweh kept His promises, yet His people forgot Him. Verse 22 you also gave them kingdoms and peoples and apportioned to them, them to them as a boundary. They took possession of the land of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You made their sons numerous as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land which you had said for their fathers to enter and possess. So their sons entered and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and you gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of their land to do with them according to their desire. They captured fortified cities and a rich land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, trees for food in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and reveled in your great goodness." But they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had testified to them so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the ones who, who distressed them and they afflicted them with distress. But at the time of their distress they cried to you and you listened from heaven. And according to your abundant compassion you gave them saviors and they saved them from the hand of the one that distressed them. But as soon as they had rest, they returned to do evil before you. Therefore, you forsook them in the hand of their enemies, so they had dominion over them. Then they returned and cried to you, and you listened from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your compassion and testified to them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, by which if a man does them, he shall live. And they gave a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However, you bore with them for many years and testified to them by your spirit, by the hands of your prophets, yet they would not give ear. So you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your abundant compassion, you did not make a complete destruction of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. And now, having made the case to God from their own history, they acknowledge that God is faithful and His people are not. 
But with great boldness, they finish this prayer in three little parts. Part one, their request. Verse 32. So now, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you, which has found us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. This is a request that God would regard their weakness and misery as significant, that they've been suffering for a long time, that He would once again show compassion and grace. And by the way, in this whole last section of this prayer, did you notice something? They've been weaving in affirmations of God's grace and His compassion. Verse 17, You are a God of lavish forgiveness, gracious and compassionate. Verse 19, But you and your abundant compassion. Verse 27, At the end, it says, according to your abundant compassion. Verse 31, nevertheless, in your abundant compassion, for you're a gracious and compassionate God. They make a request. And finally, here, the second part of the three in the last part of the prayer, their confession. This is their official confession. Verse 33. However, you are righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt in truth, but we have acted wickedly. Now our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers did not do your law or pay attention to your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them, but they in their own kingdom with your abundant goodness which you gave them with the broad and rich land which you set before them did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. I want you to notice this. They made no excuses. There's no caveats. There's no limitations. God has been completely righteous and they have blown it. There's no excuses. That the kings and princes and priests and family leaders have all ignored the law of God. Their request, their confession, and they end their prayer with their sorrow. Verse 36, their sorrow. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its goodness, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have put over us because of our sins They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle according to their desire. So we are in great distress. This is not the glorious kingdom like in Solomon's day. This is not a free and independent Israel. They're still slaves to a master hundreds of miles away in the Persian Empire. This remnant has not, cannot, and will not bring in the glorious kingdom of God on earth as promised so many hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Something else must happen. Our one lesson. God is faithful and His people are not. One lesson which points the reader, points Israel forward toward the need for something greater, for a lasting covenant. One lesson which proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that time after time, God is true and His people are not. And one lesson that proves beyond any doubt that a more permanent, effective, effectual heart change must occur In order to enjoy lasting eternal fellowship and union with God, God is faithful and His people are not. And you end this prayer in, it says, in great distress. They have just recounted the fact that no matter how hard they tried, they could not obey. But implied in this prayer, woven into it subtly, there is proof that God is faithful And his people are not. And we see that obviously. But implied in the prayer is a tremendous certainty. 
What is it? God has been faithful in the past, time and time and time and time and time and time again to his people. He has never forsaken them. What does that tell us about the future? It tells us he will continue to be faithful. And the prayer of Jeremiah at the time of the fall of Jerusalem as given in Lamentations 3 affirms this certainty. Lamentations 3.22 The loving kindnesses of Yahweh indeed never cease for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I wait for Him. What is the new thing that must happen? The new thing that must happen, it leads Israel, it leads us as the reader longing for a covenant that Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31 is a new covenant. A new covenant in Christ where now God's people are given hearts that respond to the law. Hearts that, in which the law of God is written on their very hearts. God is faithful and His people are not. But we can add to this. God will be faithful to create people who are faithful. And he's done that in the church and he will do that in Israel. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're humbled to think of the great lengths and efforts that these people went to confess their sins before you, spending hours in confession and and crafting together this prayer where they literally recounted their entire history and all the monuments of your faithfulness and all the examples of how they were unfaithful. But they, like us, lean on the promise that you have made, that your mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Amen.